Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and today we're starting a new series with our final Sunday in the year of 2018. If you've been following with us, we have spent in the year of 2018, I think seven weeks on the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. We then spent another five weeks going through the rest of the Old Testament, going from Joshua to Malachi, so 12 weeks just on the Old Testament. And now we're going to go into the New Testament, and we're just going to spend three weeks, which does not seem like enough time, and it probably is not, but I think it will allow us to focus on the the very main themes of the New Testament. And so we'll look at one week on the life of Christ, and that will be today. We'll look at the book of Luke or the Gospel of Luke. Uh, next week, when we head into 2019, we'll be looking at the Acts of the Apostles, so the kingdom on earth. And then lastly, we'll look at the letters and Revelation. And so those will be the three weeks that we'll spend on the New Testament. I think it's going to be great. So today I'll be talking on the Gospel of Luke. Very excited to share with you what all I've been able to try and pack into one Sunday one 40-minute session on the Gospel of Luke. I think you'll really enjoy it. So let's go to Kyle Fagala now. All right. So I'm actually going to start with a little trivia. There won't be a lot of space for participation this morning. I apologize because it's going to be a mile a minute. But we will have some trivia, so there will be that. This is an idea I got from my mom yesterday. So this is, this is for you, MJ. Um, all right, so uh, don't be embarrassed if you don't know this. This divide is so large today. Um, how many uh, chapters are there in the book of Luke? Does anyone know? I'll start with you, Mary Jane. 24. Very good. We had that conversation. That's sort of cheating. Um, do you know? The thing is that in the month of December, if you read a chapter a day, then you're ready for the coming. Okay. Well, there you go. I didn't know that, but now I do. Um, thank you. Which gospel has the most chapters? Does anyone know that? Matthew, do you know how many? 28. Okay. We can't, y'all probably know too much of this, so we need to let it spread around the room. Um, which, which gospel has the fewest chapters? Mark. Okay, now it's the process of elimination. But uh, how many does Mark have? Do you know? 16. Okay, y'all are smart. All right, now, which is the longest gospel? Now, this is by words, not chapters. John? David says John. David is wrong. It is Luke. Uh, Luke has uh, roughly 19,000 words. Matthew has about 18,000. All right. Who does Luke say was the Roman emperor at the time of Jesus' birth? If you listen to Charlie Reed in church on Sunday, he said it. No, not Quirinius. He wasn't emperor. Caesar Augustus. And the last one is, to whom does Luke address both Luke and Acts 2? Theophilus. Okay. If you got none of those right, that's okay. That is okay. That's why you're here today. Um, all right, so let's do a little bit on who is Luke as we get into this. Um, so that was some on Luke and maybe a little bit on who is Luke. But uh, you'll notice, too, I love, like, old uh, religious art. I think it's great. I don't think it's, like, perfect or it's trying to be or whatever. But I, I think it's, for me at least, cool to think about uh, the ways in which people engaged with the Bible over thousands of years through art. And I think anytime you go to an art museum, there's, there's always that present there in my mind. Um, so Luke was a friend and disciple of Paul. So you'll read about him a lot during the letters. And maybe we'll cover some of this, but uh, it's sort of there in the background. I've been listening through 
the letters lately, and, and Luke's name shows up, you know, four or five times here and there. Uh, a few of the places, Colossians 4, this is Paul, and all of these, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, so he names him as the doctor. Uh, in Philemon, Luke, my fellow worker, and then in 2 Timothy, uh, actually only Luke is with me at that time, so this was towards the end of Paul's life. Probably 2 Timothy was the last one he wrote, I think, maybe, y'all can tell me about that later, uh, but shortly before he uh, passed, um, Luke was with him. All right, so uh, Luke, we think, was Greek. He definitely was a doctor, if we're to believe what's written, um, and he was a disciple of Paul who lived in the Greek city of Antioch, Turkey, which is in ancient Syria. Uh, so real quickly, why do we think Luke was Greek? This may not be important to you. Uh, if he was Greek, it would make him the only non-Jewish writer of the New Testament. So I think that is important. He'd be the only non-Jew. And, I, and I'll give a little bit, maybe more detail than you'd like. But in Colossians 4, verses 10 through 11, Paul sets up this idea that he has certain Jewish people with him. So he says, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Then there's a guy named Justice who sends greetings. And he says then, these are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. And then in verse 14, he says, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. So it obviously seems that he has some Jewish people that are working with him, and then he has some non-Jewish people. Uh, so it would either mean that Luke is Greek or a Gentile, or maybe he's a Hellenized Jew, which means he's, he's like a non-practicing Jew or like a lapsed Jew, you could say. Um, either way, he's different, okay? He's sort of set apart. Um, all right, so then we have uh, Luke's other names. He's known as the Evangelist. That's sort of his nickname. Of course, St. Luke, and then he did write Luke and Acts. At least that's what we think. Uh, both, again, are addressed to Theophilus. He doesn't really say that he wrote it, but you'll see in Acts that there are times where he starts saying, and we traveled, and there's these sections that make it pretty clear. Um, this is also interesting of Luke. Um, you would think of the New Testament. Who do you think wrote uh, more of the New Testament than anyone else? Like, who would be your quick thought? Paul. Okay, so Paul obviously wrote more books, but Luke actually wrote more text. And so uh, when you add Luke and the book of Acts together, it's more than one quarter of the New Testament, which means he did write more of the New Testament than any other author, which is pretty cool. I didn't know that until I read it. Um, he's believed to be a martyr, which most New Testament uh, characters were. Uh, he was reportedly hung from an olive tree. Uh, also, tradition holds, I think this is interesting, uh, and you'll see it show up. Uh, this is him eh, holding a pen, but sometimes you'll see like a little feathery pen, sometimes holding a palette. And then in this case, he's right, he's, this is actually, he's, he's showing this off. His hand is saying, I, I painted this. Uh, he was an artist, we think. And so he's depicted with different art things. So Grant, who's an artist, you can appreciate now Luke. He's your patron saint. Um, and so uh, he's also the patron saint of a lot of things, which I think if you look at patron saints, it's interesting because it's not just one thing, it's like many different things. And so I guess it's sort of like athletes. It's like, like LeBron James, like this is probably a stretch, but he'd be the patron saint of a lot of things because we, you know, we want him to represent a lot. Uh, but Luke is the patron saint of artists, like I just said, physicians, that one makes sense, surgeons along similar lines, uh, bachelors, okay, uh, butchers, students, and then many other things. So there you go. He, he's got a lot of things. Um, I think the physician's thing and the artist thing makes sense. Bachelors, I have no idea. Was, I guess he was unmarried, I guess we think. So I guess that does make sense. Okay, just figured that one out. All right, so uh, who is his audience? You'll hear this a lot that each gospel sort of had a specific audience. I don't know if that's true or not. I think Matthew's maybe the clearest that it seems really written to a Jewish audience. Um, since Luke was Greek, 
uh, it's typically spoken of as if he wrote Luke in this gospel. The point of it was to speak to the Greeks or to the Gentiles. Um, and definitely in contrast to Matthew, that makes sense. All right, so then I want to kind of show you this. Oh, yeah, here's uh, oh, another thing I didn't really get into is, is there are different symbols. And so for what it's worth, I think it's in Ezekiel um, that it talks of these four different sort of beasts. And so you've got Matthew that's like a, a man, and I have it written on my slides, and I can't read it over here, uh, but sort of like a divine man, I think it is. Um, looks like, yeah, uh, Luke is a bull that's got wings, uh, Mark is a lion, and then John is, a, is an eagle. But anyway, you'll see those like in, in Catholic paintings and like old paintings where it represents them. Uh, why is Luke a winged bull? A lot of different reasons. There's a lot of scenes. It starts with Zechariah and, and Luke where he's, um, he's a priest and he is sacrificing a bull and then some other things that it kind of talks about along those lines. And he's also the patron saint of butchers. So there you go. Um, so you can remember that. All right, so here is uh, something about the different Gospels. You probably know this, that there are aspects of the Gospels that they all share. There's aspects of the Gospels that are all unique. Of course, John is a non-synoptic Gospel, so it is like almost its own thing. It was written later. Um, but you've got uh, the Gospel of, of Luke. The, the Gospel of Mark was written first, and so that's why they have it there. So it shares some with that. It shares some with Matthew, and then it has some that's just its own. And I won't go into too much of that detail. Uh, written probably between 80 and 110 A.D., so within the lifetime of, of Jesus. Which is to say, if there were things in this that did not happen, it would have been very easy for someone to say, hey, that, that didn't happen, I was, I was there. So, all right, so here's how we're gonna do this, because obviously trying to get through this is tough. Uh, we are going to start with uh, chapters one through two, and we'll split this up into five sections. Uh, so we'll have the introduction, then we'll go into chapters three through nine, which is Jesus and his mission, nine through 19, which is the journey to Jerusalem, then we'll have 19 through 23, which I call the Passion Week, which is that last week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem. And then Luke 24, Jesus is risen. Wait, I don't call it the Passion Week. People have called it that for thousands of years. Okay, but I like to use that terminology. It was not what they used, but I like it. Okay. All right, so here's part one. This is the introduction. Um, and so you'll see here, this is actually uh, one of da Vinci's paintings. This is the Annunciation. So this is the angel visiting Mary. But there are actually two Annunciations. And so you probably know, uh, probably, the first Annunciation is not that of Jesus. There's someone that comes before Jesus, John the Baptist. Um, but I think it's interesting that you see in Luke, as it opens up, you see two Annunciations, and I call them parallel. They, they seem to be very similar. An angel visits, and the angel says that there will be a divine son who is going to come. Okay, so the first we start with, I'll kind of go to this. You'll see kind of like my quick notes over to the side. Um, it starts in actually Jerusalem. Okay, so the story begins in Jerusalem. It ends up ending in Jerusalem. Spoiler alert. Um, and you have Zechariah, who is an elderly priest, and his wife, Elizabeth. And what's interesting is we have an elderly couple who is without child, who's been unable to have a child, being told they'll have a child, which is supposed to remind you of something. This is like the easiest question ever. Who does that remind you of? People are like, yes, <laughs> champing at the bit. Um, it's not chomping at the bit. Do you know that? Anyway, whole another story. Um, all right, so just as God miraculously chose to give Abraham and Sarah a child at old age, God is choosing to do the same thing again for his people. So obviously, this is written to a Greek audience, but I think they would have been aware of this story. Uh, certainly Jews would have 
And we'll see that a lot. And I think that's kind of my goal for today, at the very least, is to kind of get at some of these major themes that uh, the, the Old Testament foreshadows into the New Testament and vice versa. All right, so then the next one is we, we move on to Nazareth, which is up north, um, and we see a unmarried Virgin Mary and her to-be husband, Joseph. And so an angel visits her, and then uh, he tells her to name her baby Jesus. Does anyone know what Jesus means? The Lord saves. Yeah. All right. And so uh, Mary's first question, I think, is a natural one as a virgin. She says in Luke 1, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Which then raises, I think, the first question for me in Luke uh, is why virgin birth? Did it need to be a virgin birth? I don't think. Um, I think it could have very well been that it was Joseph's baby. And I don't necessarily think that would have defeated uh, the purpose of Christ. But in looking into it, uh, I think it actually was necessary that it was a virgin birth. That was my thinking as, as I was going through it. Um, I think the first thing to say is that Luke is a physician. Uh, who better to realize that a virgin birth is not medically possible? I think that's kind of an interesting thing to think of. Um, actually, the most extensive account of Mary is in Luke, and Luke actually focuses on women more than any other gospel writer. There are some modern historians that think Luke was actually female. I don't think that, but uh, he definitely focuses on women a lot. Um, I think the virgin birth shows that Jesus was not just an ordinary man and not even just a great man, which would be easy to say. Like, well, he's a great guy, he had some great ideas, wasn't divine, okay? Uh, and the virgin birth didn't happen. But I think Luke's account is to say that, no, in fact, it did, that Jesus was divine and he was sent miraculously by God. It's the only way that it could have happened this way. Um, also, I think importantly, it fulfills ancient prophecy. In Isaiah 7, we have, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, and that sign will be the virgin will be with child. And we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, the Bible Project says it like this, too, which I think thematically is important, is that the same Holy Spirit that brought life and light out of darkness in Genesis 1 uh, generated life inside Mary's womb. Through the conception and birth of the Messiah, God bound himself to humanity. So we have the same Spirit that created life in Genesis 1 now in Luke 1, in the beginning of this part of the story, generates life inside Mary's womb. Miraculously, out of nothing, you could say. I think that's beautiful. All right, so the next thing is we have uh, these long songs, probably not an, an aspect of Luke that you like think about a lot, but there's two songs. Again, the parallel enunciations, and we have these parallel songs. And these songs each represent this sort of culmination of this prophecy uh, from the Psalms and the prov uh, prophets, rather. And so we have um, a song about John the Baptist, and we have a song about Jesus. And so I think Zechariah sings a song about John, and then Mary sings a song about Jesus. Um, so John is, of course, the prophetic messenger that we read about in the Torah and prophets. He prepares Israel to meet their God, and then Jesus is the messianic king, promised to David, who brings God's reign and blessing, uh, as was promised to Abraham. All right, so then we know the rest of the story. This is where it gets into more of the narrative section that we all know. You've probably heard that Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem. Uh, they delivered Jesus in a manger. Of course, we have the shepherds that follow the star and that show up and worship the baby Jesus. Uh, I'm basing a lot of this on the Bible Project. They have a video that does a great job of just really highlighting how, you know, we have the king of Israel coming to be born in a manger, like in the trough of an animal, which is really bizarre. And so I think that the main point of the birth narrative is just to say that would anyone have expected the Messiah to be born that way? Um, I mean, you know, all four of my kids have been born in a hospital where it's real clean. To me, the idea of the baby being born at home, which I know y'all have done, is crazy to me. I'm like, no, 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 we're going to have it in a hospital. 
Uh, and then you even see pe like people that, you know, they have to have it in a barn because they're like driving or in a car. I'm like, that's crazy. Like I would freak out. But in a manger around animal slop and, and waste, I mean, it's crazy. Um, and I think the point is to highlight that God is turning the world upside down, that what seems normal or what seems appropriate is, is not what God has in mind. And it's in the same way that God works through flawed people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, um, he, God is choosing to subvert expectations and to work through the upside down. Okay, so let's move on into part two. This is Jesus and his mission. This is Jesus' baptism when he's really busy, old paintings, lots of cool stuff in it. It reminds me of like the early Where's Waldo, you know, these sorts of paintings. Uh, Waldo's not in that. I know you're looking now. All right, I'm going to show a couple videos today because I think there are certain parts that do a good job. I'm just going to show two, okay, so don't groan. Um, but this first one is going to be on this second part. The Gospel according to Luke began by telling us about the births of John the Baptist and Jesus. All right, so let's jump in, and I have so much left to get through, so I apologize in advance as I start to rush. All right, so chapters, uh, well, let's talk a little bit about three through nine. There's a couple things they don't focus on that I like, um, and uh, we'll do that very quickly. So uh, the genealogy, so if you notice, the genealogies are different. So Matthew and Luke's genealogies uh, are different. Um, they actually are the same relatively up till David, and then after David, they're almost entirely different. There's a couple names that are shared, but they're probably not the same people. Um, there's a lot of theories on that. I think the one that seems to speak to me the most and seems to be the most common is, is that Luke follows Jesus' lineage through Mary, while Matthew follows through Joseph. Now, that would, that would fit with the fact that Luke focuses so much on Mary, that he focuses on women in general. That seems to make sense. I think it also makes sense um, just that he was a Greek versus uh, Matthew being a Jew. Uh, it, it seems to make sense to me, and so we'll go with that. Either way, they're through both lines are through David, so it qualifies him, as it were, to be eligible as the Messiah. The main point of the genealogy, though, is, so whether these genealogies are complete or, or whatever you want to say, um, that it, it, it links Jesus to three main Old Testament characters. So David, because Jesus is a king. Abraham, because Jesus brings God's blessing. And Adam, because Christ is the new Adam, but he brings the blessing to all humanity. So I think that, that's the key part of the, the genealogy. Uh, they say it better than I can, but um, Jesus' main mission is to come to, to free the poor. Okay, And so the poor is not just someone that doesn't have money. In fact, as it said, you could have a lot of money and still be poor. I think another thing is, is that Jesus' mission and his, his message was best received by poor people. I think it is easy for us to focus on successful, insider, wealthy people with, with our mission or with the way that we try and run church, um, but in fact it was the opposite that were receptive to the message. And I think that when you talk to missionaries, that is oftentimes the case. So I think it's an important reminder. Not that the message is just for the poor, but that the message had been subverted and misused to only be valuable to the rich, in, in that sense the insiders. And so the religious leaders had made it about something different than what God had intended it to be. Okay, so let's move on into the third part. This is uh, painting the prodigal son. There'll be another one. Uh, so chapters 9 through 19, so the prodigal son is in this. But there's a lot else, too. So this is the journey to Jerusalem. So we're heading up to Jerusalem. And uh, so what we see is, is that we have Jesus and the disciples heading to Jerusalem, where they'll join thousands of Israelites to celebrate the ancient feast of the Passover. And so this road trip, again, all this kind of mirrors things that happened in the Old Testament uh, 
intentionally. Um, and so it's supposed to remind you of Israel's long road trip uh, that we actually just studied. And so that's the, thing, that's the cool thing about this. So we, I actually just taught on it in Numbers recently. Um, and so with Moses, they traveled from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. Uh, later, King David established Jerusalem as their capital. And so what you're seeing here is, is that Luke is establishing again, Jesus as a new version of Moses and a new version of David. Okay, so a new Moses in that he's going to renew Israel's covenant with God and a new David as he's going to gather his people together to live under his rule. And so as David established the temple as as the house of God, Jesus is going to do that in somewhat of a different way. Uh, There's a lot of teachings and parables. I think the parables in general, you could say, and there's like dozens of them, uh, but that if you follow Jesus, it's going to change the way that you act. It's going to change the way that you think about money, how you resolve conflict, and how you treat the poor. Um, and again, there's this focus on the good news to the poor. Okay, uh, This upsets the religious leaders, and so this is the undercurrent conflict, is the religious leaders that are getting upset with Jesus, that don't like the way that he's changing things. They like the system as it is. And so then, in light of this, Jesus tells one of his most famous parables, which is the prodigal son. Okay, And I think we probably know the prodigal son story. I will do a quick read of it so that if you don't, you're on the same page. Uh, So in the story, a father has two sons, a younger and an older. The younger son asks the father for his inheritance. The father grants the son's request. However, the younger son is prodigal, which means wasteful and extravagant. He squanders his his fortune, eventually becomes destitute. Uh, He almost eats the pig slop. Uh, The younger son is forced to return home empty-handed and intends to beg his father to accept him back as a servant. To the son's surprise, he is not scorned by his father, but is welcomed back with celebration and fanfare. Envious, the older son refuses to participate in the festivities. The father reminds the older son that one day he will inherit everything and that he should still celebrate the return of his younger son because he was lost and now is found. Okay, so you've probably heard 30 sermons on the prodigal son, something like that. I know I have. It's super, super common. I think it's super common because it's a beautiful story and it's one that we can get at. Uh, But who does the older son represent as it pertains to what we just talked about? Or who do you think the older son represents? He represents the Jews, the the religious leaders. Uh, He's actually telling this story at a banquet with religious leaders. And that's that's a really common thing in Luke is that he will eat with sinners. And he's criticized for it, but he also eats with religious leaders. Now, when he eats with the religious leaders, he often finds a way to criticize them and to make them upset, which is fun. Um, But the older brother is basically Jesus' not-so-subtle way of criticizing the Jewish leaders he's eating with. Um, And so the point, though, is that he he wants the religious leaders to see this younger brother and and to see the lost as God sees them, to see outsiders. And this is in a lot of different parables about outsiders and how God invites them in and how the Jewish leaders would not. And in fact, he wants them to see the lost as sons and daughters who are being reclaimed from death. Now, if you saw it in that light, you would think this is a good thing. It's just not how they saw it. Um, and so also to say that Jesus' kingdom is wide open to anybody, the only entry requirement is to humble yourself and recognize your need for God's mercy. Uh, and so it, it's easier for someone who's poor and who's lost to humble themselves. They're sort of at you know, rock bottom in some sense. Much more difficult for someone who's wealthy or who's in power to humble themselves which is, I think, why it says that it's, it's harder for a rich man to inherit the kingdom than to go through the eye of a needle. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to get to that place where, where God wants us. All right, so at the end of chapter 18, we're approaching Jerusalem, and then the religious leaders have started to plot his murder. Okay, so on into the Passion Week. 
All right, so this is, uh, starts with the triumphal entry. And so the triumphal entry is extremely important from a, like a prophetic standpoint. People would have been kind of waiting for this. You might imagine that Jewish people, it's around the time of the religious feast. It's sort of like around the time of Christmas for us. We start thinking about these stories and singing these songs. They would be doing the same thing. And the ancient prophets, they promised that one day God himself would arrive and rescue the people to rule the world. Uh, other times the prophet spoke about a coming king who would ride into Jerusalem to bring justice and peace. So as this is happening, naturally they're pretty excited. So they sing out Hosanna. They, they kind of get it. You know, it's not like they're it's like, what's going on? As other times the disciples are apt to do. They get it. They're, they're kind of following along. And so those who are like anticipating this, the Jewish people, they're ecstatic. I mean, they're ex- extremely excited. What's, what's interesting to me is when I think of the triumphal entry, and I think in any painting we ever see, Jesus is like kind of excited. Or if you see like a video of the triumphal entry, Jesus is like happy. But actually in the text, he's, he's not happy. Um, the religious leaders are upset. We, we get that. But Jesus himself is upset. Did anyone know that or think about that? I didn't. Uh, so it actually says that Jesus weeps as he rides into town, um, which I don't think of. Okay. And so why is Jesus weeping? This is not when he weeps like in John, but uh, he's weeping because he knows he won't be accepted as Israel's king. And then he also prophesies the destruction of the temple. And so he's, he knows that Israel will keep heading down a destructive path. And I think this makes him upset. This causes him to weep. It also makes him angry. So what's the first thing he does when he gets into the town? Well, he goes to the temple and he cleanses it. All right, so uh, super interesting story. We know this story. This is one of the times where, where Jesus is kind of angry. He does some things that seem out of character, but I don't think they're out of character. Um, and I think what he's angry about is that the religious leaders, again, have not done what God had in mind, and they've created a kingdom on earth that is not his kingdom. Um, and so he marches into the temple courts. We know this story. He drives out the money changers. He turns over tables. Uh, he, he whips, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, and then he starts to critique the religious leaders. This is a part of the story I did not know, is is that he's quoting Jeremiah. And in fact, Jeremiah stood in the same place of the temple and did the same thing, you know, many hundred years before, which is cool as we just studied this to think of Jeremiah doing the same thing. And so in Luke 19, 45, quoting Jeremiah, he says, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of robbers. So Jesus is doing two things. He's quoting a prophecy and doing the same thing Jeremiah did. Because what God had thought about the temple has not changed, okay? He's also provoking the religious leaders so they'll kill him. Okay, so this, this serves sort of a dual purpose. And so I think, you know, he goes in there, he causes all this fuss to really push him to the limit where they're like, we got to kill him now, okay? All right, so the Last Supper. We know the Last Supper. This is where Jesus shares the Passover with his disciples. Um, this is cool because he takes the symbol of bread and wine that are very much a part of uh, the Passover. So I, I got to go to a Sabbath dinner, and I've mentioned this a few times, but there, there's a song for the wine, there's a song for the bread. It's very much a part of that meal. Of course, over Passover, it, it is too. And he, so he takes these symbols that are important to Jewish people and to the Exodus, and he makes them about a new Exodus. And so Jesus's broken body and his blood are going to liberate and free Jesus's new Israel. So in the same way that that blood and wine were a part of a meal where the Jews were saved and they were taken out of Egypt, now this is a new exodus and, uh, for a new Israel, okay? Of course, we do this every Sunday to remember that. So then, and there's so much in this section, it's almost laughable to try and go through it, but I want to get at the big stuff. Uh, we have Jesus in the garden where he prays, and there's some amazing things there. Um, he's uh, eventually arrested, 
He's then dragged before Pilate, and I think his uh, conversation with Pilate is very interesting. Pilate believes Jesus to be innocent, but then I think my favorite story is, is that he arranges for Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. So he assumes, I think, that they'll take, you know, they hear Barabbas or Jesus, oh, we'll take Jesus, we don't Barabbas. But they take this murderous, crazy guy, Barabbas, instead of Jesus. I think the theme that is really beautiful is, is that what's happening here is the innocent, Jesus, is handed over in place of the guilty. Um, so Barabbas being the guilty, just as us, uh, is, is let go, whereas the innocent is handed over. All right, so then to the cross, we know that story. Um, and I think the, the beauty of the cross, there's a lot to the cross and a lot more that I should say. Um, this is actually El Greco, if you know anything about old art. They think he had a, a, a vision issue, and so he drew all his characters real long and stretched out. I don't know if you know about that. So you'll notice, you, you know in El Greco by the fingers being like super duper long. Um, but anyway. All right, so while Jesus suffered, uh, he remained merciful and loving. I think that's the beauty of the crucifixion. It's, it's almost like, um, I really have a good analogy to it, but it's almost like he's going through it, knowing full well what he's going through. Not like he's enjoying it. He didn't want to do it. He prayed for it to be taken away from him. And yet, well, I got to go through it. Um, and yet, it's almost like he looks at, the people that are punishing him as, as his children, because they are. And so he, uh, he prays over the Roman soldiers. Uh, he asks for them to be forgiven because they don't know what they do. There's a criminal next to him. One laughs at him. One you know, asks to be forgiven. And so he says that he'll see him in paradise. Um, and then as he dies, he's quoting Psalm. He's quoting the words of, of David, which is cool. This is his relative. He's quoting you know, his great, great, great times 100 grandfather. Uh, but father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's from David and Psalm. Okay. So we have the fifth part, which is just one chapter. Jesus is risen. I have a video we're going to watch, and then we've got about five minutes to wrap up. We've been looking at the story of Jesus as it's told in Luke's gospel. It begins with the arrival of an unlikely king born in poor, humble circumstances. Then we okay, so about five minutes, and we'll be wrapped up. All right, so the road to Emmaus, I think that's one of the more interesting stories, and there's a couple different things that people think that that's saying. I think they say that it's, you know, you can't see Jesus for who he really is, which I think is cool. Uh, I got this from the ESV Study Bible, but I think this is great. I'm just going to read it, is that what you see here is a parallel between Genesis 3, the beginning of history, and then Luke 24, which is the climax of history. So at the beginning of history, as you remember, two people ate food offered to them by Satan. Their eyes were opened, and the whole human race was plunged into sin and death. At the climax of history, here at the road to Emmaus, effectively, uh, you have two people who ate food offered to them by Christ. Their eyes were opened, and they saw Christ uh, for who he was and the new age that was beginning in him. Okay, so do you see that parallel? I'd never heard that. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and so, of course, this is a new age where sin and death no longer rule. It's pretty cool. So their eyes are opened to different realities, as it were, which I think is pretty neat. It reminds me kind of, you know, and in narratives, this is like super common that a story opens and then it closes with the opposite or with a different sort of turn on that. This is from the show Lost, if you've ever watched it. This spoils the whole show if you've not, but it's, it's time. You should have seen it. But the show opens with the main character's eye opening, and then it ends with it closing. And so I think there is this sort of like, uh, you know, this beauty in the way that it, it begins and ends with the same idea. All right, so the opening of eyes to two different realities, you could say. 
All right, so let's get into uh, a conclusion here um, on the main ideas in Luke, and there are many. These are the few that, st that stood out to me. The first, again, and they've talked about it in these videos, and you've seen it, and they talked about it more than you were able to hear because we didn't watch through the videos, but uh, the good news to the poor. And so this is uh, Jesus quoting Isaiah 61 in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Uh, we, you think of Luke as a physician, we think of Jesus in Luke's narrative as the great physician. Um, and so Christ did not come for the clean and the religious, the upright and the educated. He came for those who knew themselves to be lost. And so... Um, Throughout Luke, we see Jesus who he welcomes outsiders into the blessings of grace, while those who appear to be insiders are shut out. Okay, I think you get that. Uh, there's also a concept called redemptive history, and that is the way in which you teach the New Testament and the Old Testament in light of one another, uh, which I think you know, can be overdone, it can be underdone. I think that's obviously there. I think the way that we've approached this series on the Old and New Testament is, in many ways, redemptive, um, and I think that's the way that we, we view it. I think that's the way that it was written. I think is also like some stories are written as sort of moral tales or as narratives of just those characters. But I think that they, uh, they obviously are working towards Jesus. I think that is the way that the story is written. All right, so I'm going to read this as a quote because it, I, I can't summarize it as, as well as they do. But placed against the backdrop of the whole Bible, Luke's gospel shows us that the one for whom God's people had been waiting so long had finally come. In him, all the hopes and promises of the Old Testament were coming to decisive fulfillment. He was the true Son of God, who, unlike Adam, God's first son, walked faithfully with God. He was the true Israel, who, unlike Israel before him, passed the test in the wilderness. After generations of sin, failure, and finally exile, one had come who would bear punishment for his people and fulfill the ancient promises. The people would be restored to God. This was the one about whom the entire Old Testament spoke. All right, and then lastly, we have a sacrifice once and for all. Um, I said I was listening to the New Testament. I'm behind, and so I'm having to like, catch up. So listening to a lot, and in the shower, I was listening to Hebrews as I was studying this, and it landed on Hebrews 9 and 10. And so this sort of, uh, for me, will be the conclusion for today. But in Luke 23, you probably know the story about how as Jesus dies, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. If you remember that, it's also in Matthew. Um, and so if you don't know the details of that, the temple, um, which was the dwelling place of God on earth, had a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, which was truly God's dwelling place, from the rest of the temple and, of course, from the rest of the world. Um, uh, what this signifies, and this is the whole conflict of the entire story, is God's separation uh, from man because man is sinful. So we see that in the garden. That's where the conflict arises as we eat the fruit. We're separated from God. We used to be with God and walking with God without sin. And then as we sin, we're separated from God. And that lasts really until this point, okay, where that veil is torn. Um, and so uh, once a year, a high priest was allowed to enter in through that curtain into the presence of God. Now, if you don't go into all the detail, but he had to have his legs wrapped with a rope in case he messed up so they could drag him out. So this was the full holiness of uh, infinite God in this place. And so the, the high priest would go in, and on behalf of all of Israel, he would atone for their sins once a year. Of course, we know that they did other atonements and other sacrifices throughout uh, the year. Um, so the curtain ripping signifies 
uh, that now the way into the Holy of Holies and the presence of God was open for all people for all time for both Jews and Gentiles. Huge deal. And I think really like the, the main point, if you had to pick one main point of Luke, it's really that, that the veil is torn. So in Hebrews 10, I'll read it, 19 through 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So the image here is of Jesus' flesh being torn for us just as he was tearing the curtain or the veil for us. In Hebrews 9, 28, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So this is not a sacrifice that has to happen every day or once a year. This is a once and for all sacrifice. Okay, And so the good news, the gospel, is that our sin no longer keeps us separated from God. Christ has torn the veil, and he took away our sins with his perfect sacrifice once and for all. And so I think that that is uh, the gospel of Luke in about 40 minutes. Okay, so that is the gospel of Luke, and that begins our New Testament series. I'm just listening back, and I think our microphone may have gotten messed up, so I apologize. It may have been that way this whole podcast, I'm not sure. Um, there were a couple videos that I did edit out, obviously, from the podcast. Those are Bible Project videos. They have a five-part series on the Gospel of Luke that I think is animated extremely well and uh, narrated just wonderfully. They also have two videos on uh, read scripture of Luke where they go into a little bit more of the detail of the scripture itself. I prefer the five-part series. I think it's um, I just told a little bit more narratively, and I think you'll appreciate it more. I think it's also a newer series, uh, but I, I showed videos two and five from that five-part series. So go look that up. It's free. It's out there on YouTube or on their website, The Bible Project. It's the, the Luke series. Uh, all those five videos are extremely good, and a lot of what I talked about this morning was from that and, and pulled almost directly uh, from that. And then there were some things I pulled from uh, the ESV Study Bible and then just across the Internet in general. Um, I don't claim to have these ideas as my original ideas, uh, but there are some really great ones. And to be honest, that personally, I really, really enjoyed studying this and teaching it as well. And so I hope you got something out of it also. Um, this is the end of 2018. Uh, we will be back in 2019 as David teaches on Acts and the idea that the kingdom has come to earth. The early church and all the stories of Paul's missionary journeys, there is so much in Acts, kind of crazy to do it in one Sunday, but I know David will do an excellent job with it. That's all we have. I hope you have been blessed this year by this podcast, by this class, and I hope next year is more of the same. Uh, We're grateful for you. If you're in Memphis, of course, come see us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. here at Highland Church of Christ in Cordova, Tennessee, outside of Memphis. We'd love to have you join us for class. Um, That's all I have for today. Happy New Year. Hope God blesses you in this coming new year, and I know that he will. Um, We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.